From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Philanthropy is in Andrew Dayton's DNA. He's the son of former Governor Mark Dayton. His grandfather, Bruce Dayton, was CEO of Dayton Hudson Department Store and a devoted trustee of the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. He was once described in the New York Times as the Dean of American Corporate Arts Philanthropy. His mother, a member of the Rockefeller family, is also a passionate philanthropist. Andrew is co-founder of North Corp, a Minneapolis-based retail and restaurant group that he started with his brother, Eric. Andrew went on to work for the mayor's office in San Francisco. He returned to Minneapolis last year to launch the Constellation Fund, a grant-making organization created to fight poverty. He's here with us today to talk about his data-driven approach to giving back. Welcome to By All Means, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Allie. Thanks for being here. Well, before we get into your new venture, which Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to talk about, can we go back? And with you, I think we need to go way back. Yeah, sure. What? What was it like growing up in the Twin Cities with the name Dayton? Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, I have two famous names. Uh, my mom's side, Rockefeller. My dad's side's Dayton's. But growing up in Minnesota, Dayton's always felt bigger, right? It mm-hmm. felt weightier than Rockefeller, even if that it might be more of a household name elsewhere. And it was just because it was it was everywhere. There was a presence for that company in this town. You know, I would go to the store growing up. I would hear from members of the community how much that store meant to them. You know, collecting Santa bears and, and <laughs> seeing my grandfather and his brothers shaking hands around Christmas time at the at the entrance to the store. So, I think I was always just acutely aware that 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 company and that companies in general could have a really big presence in in communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so felt that, and even you know, in 2001, when Dayton's became Marshall Field, I remember getting notes from folks who would say, oh, it's always going to be Dayton's to me. I mean, it really had... People still, uh, uh, still say Dayton's. Still, it's I think crazy. I'm part of a, a Facebook group that says uh, it's still Dayton's or something like that. So, <laughs> um, so I was always aware of that and, and definitely felt that, that weight and heard that from my parents as well. Not so much about pressure to follow in footsteps, but that that we were expected to contribute something. And my grandfather, like my dad, had a lot of sayings, and one of the sayings that he liked to use uh, was, uh, the only thing worse than a bum is a rich bum, which might not be PC these days, but the message was not lost on me. Wow. And again, it wasn't, you're expected to follow in retail or philanthropy or politics, but you've got to contribute something. And I've been given a lot. We've been given a lot as a family. I'm very privileged and have a responsibility to to pay that forward, to give that back. Um, So that was something that was instilled in my dad at a young age, and he instilled in us as well. So that is a lot of pressure, though, as a kid. I mean, did you, when you think back, did did you think you wanted to go into business? Did you want to go into politics? I mean, your father was basically in public service your entire life until just recently. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he, he was... Uh, ran for state auditor when I was quite young and, and had been in some form of office for the next 35 years. 
Um, Were you drawn to politics, or you know, I, I I saw firsthand. I was interested, and still am interested in in policy and in government. Um, I, I saw firsthand the toll that politics can can take on someone, and it's something that has been my father's life work, but. Um, hasn't necessarily been my calling. And, you know, if you look at these types of accomplishments as a young kid, it's it's pretty daunting, right? You look on both sides of my family, level of achievement in, in politics and in business. You know, if you hold yourself to those types of standards, it can be terrifying and stagnating. And so I think over time I've had to realize that it's less about reaching some sort of impossibly high bar that have been set uh, um, by these two families and instead focusing on what my own passions are and where I can be a contributing member of society mm-hmm. and and throwing myself into those projects and, and letting whatever level of success come out of that. So, you know, I went to to college and was a history major, which isn't, I wasn't going to be a history professor. That was just what I was interested in. It was my favorite subject and I've always been a bit of a history buff. Um, and then left college with an interest in the law. I, I've always also been interested in, in the legal system as the building blocks of our society. And so worked uh, a summer with Mike Freeman at the county attorney's office to, to see if that was going to be a path for me and decided to, to go to law school at that time thinking that I might end up being a prosecutor. But I've hmm. gone in a very different path since then. Yeah. yeah. So at what point did you and your brother start talking about opening a restaurant or opening a a business. Yeah. So I was in law school and had become a little bit um, uh, disillusioned with this prosecutor track. I had been working on an innocence project there um, representing a a client in Detroit who had been claiming to be wrongfully convicted and really saw the the trappings of the legal system when when abused. And there are a lot of folks who do it really well, but there are, are injustices happening. And I came to realize that if I was ever on the wrong side of a of a prosecution like that, I, I couldn't I couldn't live with myself. So started thinking about what else I, I could be doing. And it was at that time my brother had moved home from business school and was launching on this new project, this the real estate project in the North Loop. And he and I had been chatting about it consistently since the beginning of the idea and came to the conclusion that, that we should tackle it together. So I moved home for my third year of law school to uh, work on my dad's campaign. That was uh, 2009 when he was announcing his run for governor and uh, to work on these new businesses. Wow. Yeah. Um, and the North Loop was not what it is today, the North Loop of Minneapolis. I mean, it was really just beginning. Yeah. To, did you think it would emerge into one of the hottest, hippest neighborhoods in the United States? <laughs> I, I, we had, I don't think we could have guessed that it would turn into what it is now with you know, Whole Foods down the street and whatnot. I mean, we weren't the, the true pioneers down there, if you look at some of the businesses that have been around for decades even before them, Monte Carlo, Moose and Sadie's, uh, Martin Patrick, there, there were certainly people who were in that neighborhood before us, but we did love the old buildings down there. And there was this one old building that, that Eric and I had always had an eye for, uh, which is now the, the home of our of our businesses. And there are just very few great old warehouses like that in, in Minneapolis, at least. And so I think we had seen 
other cities where where uh, warehouse districts had become revitalized and brought back to life and, and saw that as an opportunity to be part of that process in the North Loop, given its proximity to the river and to downtown. It just seemed like a, a natural place to try to open a couple couple businesses. And and from the start the vision was to do a restaurant, a bar, and a retail store. Yeah, that was that was the idea. We had seen that that combination work and work well in other places. In New York, for example, there are some businesses that incorporate those those three elements in a way that, that adds uh, sort of a symbiotic relationship of going to the restaurant, then having a shopping experience, and heading downstairs for a drink. Uh, so that was always the the plan, and you know I think the, the the mission behind it was how can we create something that we thought celebrated what we loved about Minnesota. And my brother and I had each taken trips to Scandinavia, where we had seen folks really embracing the, the cold climate and uh, design and a, a high quality of life, all these things that we have in the Twin Cities, but we didn't feel were being fully celebrated. And we saw the Bachelor Farmer and Asko Finlayson and, and Marvel Bar together as a way for us to provide our perspective on what an ambitious, vibrant, forward-looking view of, of modern Twin Cities life could f- feel and look like. So mm-hmm. that was the that was the thesis behind it all. A lot of pressure specifically for retail mm-hmm. when you're a Dayton to, to open a new retail venture. Was that, I imagine, that, that did that weigh on you or, or not? You know, I don't think it weighed on us that much. I mean, the, the distance between where we were and where Target is, it was just in a whole different ballpark. And, and for us, it was more about how can we bring brands, ideas, um, a, a business that we didn't yet see in the Twin Cities to this community. Um, so I don't think, at least for me personally, I felt that same level of pressure. People did ask, yeah. oh, are you going to call it Dayton's? And, and that, was ne- that was never, <laughs> part, of, yeah, that was never yeah. part of the plan um, for, for a lot of reasons. Again, this was... I've never felt pressure to go into retail and to Did you ever work those, at Dayton's? You know, I, I didn't. Eric worked at, my brother worked mm-hmm. at uh, Target for, for a stretch. Right. Um, but, but I never Never even there. in high school or anything nope, like that? Nope, nothing like that. I did. Did you? Boys 8 to 20. Oh, okay. Yes, I sold Zubas. <laughs> Zubas. Yes, dating myself well, yeah, there. Okay. But yes, I yeah, did. Yeah. Some Bart Simpson t-shirts mm-hmm. too, nice, I believe. Nice. Yes. Um, which part of the business or what aspect of it was your favorite in mm-hmm. those early years? What did you like about creating this whole enterprise? Um, you know, it was what I really liked was bringing that building back to life. I mean, I, I found passion in each of the separate businesses, but really being part of watching that transformation of the neighborhood was something that I took a lot of pride in. Um, and then also, you know, the early stages of the store, Ascove, it began as, as more of just a a hobby shop for me and my brother mm-hmm. where we would bring in brands we thought were cool and it didn't have frankly much of a much of a, a ethos to it um, but over time we started to develop the the notion of okay again how can we celebrate what we love about this place we were bringing in brands from other parts of the country that weren't here but i think what we both found more exciting was this opportunity to bring our own ideas and to contribute to the conversation in a way that wasn't just about selling other other brands. And right. that eventually became a North Hat, which which launched this 
this movement that we can now point to that's sort of now become bigger than ASCOV uh, around the North? A lot bigger. I yeah. mean, it's kind of, you know, I mean, and, and I think your, your brother, Eric, tends to be the one who is most closely associated yeah. with North, yeah. and he's out there in yeah. his hat and parka. But um, you were there, too. Sure. Did you ever, could you have imagined that North would become what it is, that it would be the slogan for the Super Bowl, that all of our sports teams would adopt it, that our tourism association would be using North instead of Midwest? Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, I think it's not totally surprising. It really was hiding in plain sight, right? There's an east, there's a south, there's a west, but there was no north. And we were the Midwest, which was a a label that one of the coasts had probably given us and didn't make a ton of geographic sense and didn't really feel like ours and didn't feel like something that I was proud of talking about. And and didn't match with the way that I viewed this community, right? This is a place I'm really proud of that I think is full of ambition and, again, great design, great culture. You know, I'd have friends come to visit from other places and be like, man, this is a great place. I, I had no idea how cool Minnesota was. And, again, I think well, part of it was was us just not telling our story well enough. Uh, so when we made the, those first North hats, I don't think we could have expected that that would have turned into you know, a Super Bowl slogan. But I think in hindsight, it makes sense why that has caught on because I think it tapped into a frustration and a lack of association with the Midwest to, to what people feel mm-hmm. when they live here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So at a certain point, you head out to San Francisco. And if I remember correctly, it was originally, I mean, it was to to run part of the ASCO business, right? Yeah. So I think part of the reason, one of the reasons Eric has really been um, championing the North is that I was gone for a couple of years when that idea really took off. And I had moved out to San Francisco, or I'd been moving to and from San Francisco because we were starting to create our own, our own apparel. Mm-hmm. And our first product, the Explorer Pant, uh, was and still is made in San Francisco, where a lot of some of the best pants in the country and world are still made. Uh, we work with an old Levi's factory out there. Hmm. And so I was going back and forth to San Francisco and became really interested in that city. It's a fascinating city for a lot of reasons, but you know, it's doing incredibly well for so many reasons, but is also leaving people impossibly behind. And this factory that we work with is actually right in the Central Market Tenderloin area, which is where a lot of the homelessness is congregated. And so I would be going out to San Francisco, the wealthiest city in the country, and would be going to work each day to the factory and seeing abject poverty and and a humanitarian crisis. And I just couldn't understand the juxtaposition, how both things could be true at the same time. Right. And the business had, uh, businesses had gotten to a point where my brother and I both didn't need to be working on them day to day. They'd matured to a point. We've got such a great team, a really awesome uh, group of managers. And so it was a natural time for me to, to be able to step away from my day to day at the businesses and focus on uh, a growing passion, which was civic engagement. And you know, for me, it was an opportunity to explore an interest outside of the Twin Cities. My dad was governor at the time. And for me to to get into policy and get into government in that way, I didn't feel like I could do it in the Twin Cities without being handled with kid gloves, you know. Mm-hmm. And so 
um, took a project at City Hall on the side while I was working on the business to um, work in the city administrator's office and then got an offer to work full-time in the mayor's office. And, and at that point, which was 2014, um, stepped away from the day-to-day of the businesses. And what were you doing in the mayor's office? So I was a uh, deputy legislative director and essentially focused on state and federal priorities. So San Francisco is blessed with some amazing uh, advocates in, in D.C. You look at Nancy Pelosi, you look at Dianne Feinstein, both of whom are San Franciscans. Um, so I was working with those offices to advocate for the city's interests in Washington, D.C., and then also working with our legislative delegation in Sacramento to advocate for the city's interests uh, at the state capitol and really focusing on issues of inequities, housing, uh, transportation is a huge problem out there. I mean, there's there's so much that they've done well, but there's a lot of missteps that they've made as well. Um, I think folks have really tried to hold on out there to the to the nostalgic view of San Francisco as a bohemian city. And in the meantime, the city is plowing ahead as something very different mm-hmm. and and has caused a lot of problems. So. so, I mean, it makes perfect sense hearing you explain the trajectory, but yeah. it, I mean, it's a pretty big shift, right? You go from building this business and this enterprise, entrepreneurship, yeah. to all of a sudden you're working in public policy right. and, and government. Did you feel like, OK, this is where I belong Government is my thing, not business. Did you feel like I got to find a way to do both? Yeah, you what know, were you I, thinking? I, I think um, you know, I'd gone to law school on on more of a public policy track. Again, thinking that I might end up uh, in in government, working as a prosecutor. Uh, and so, th- for me, this was a, a natural way to tap back into some interests that had always been part of my part of my life and part of my passion, but hadn't been fully expressed in my day job as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it was, in a way, a, a course correction back to issues that I, I felt like I hadn't been focused on as much as I, I would have liked. And and given you know, I'm still 50-50 uh, owner with my brother and mm-hmm. so stay in close contact with him, so haven't lost touch with our businesses and have been able to, to tap into that side of my interests by maintaining involvement with what we're doing in the North Loop. But it was a way for me to, again, dive back into things that I found a lot of interest in and, frankly, to do it in a place where the Dayton name didn't mean anything, right? The mayor doesn't know the first thing about Dayton's or, or didn't my family legacy. About, yeah. yeah, didn't want to tell you about going to the Christmas show no, or the none auditorium. Of that. None of that. <laughs> you know, it was it was a chance for me to roll up my sleeves and and be anonymous in in a really interesting city, be a fly on the wall, and for some really interesting conversations, and push myself in a way that I, I hadn't been able to before. So why'd you come back? Yeah, so you know, I was reading these articles out, and when I was in San Francisco, reading these articles in the Star Tribune about rising inequities, uh, lack of affordable housing, rise in homelessness. And it was like, man, these were the articles that were written in the San Francisco Chronicle 20 years ago, right? Hmm. And it just seemed like a community like Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, was was potentially heading down the same path. And I had learned a lot working for the mayor and met a lot of really interesting people who were you know, not trying to work from you know, in reverse with the problem now so fully fledged out there trying to chip away at it and had been um, inspired by a couple of things. But one person in particular, a guy named Daniel Lurie, who runs an organization called Tipping Point, which I became involved with out there and really fascinated by. 
And Tipping Point was uh, is based on a model out of New York called the Robin Hood Foundation, which for 30 years now has been bringing a more data research and evidence-driven approach to identifying the poverty interventions that are demonstrably moving the needle and then raising and, and allocating resources to, to scale those interventions. As I, and I, as I looked at the philanthropic landscape in the Twin Cities, it just seemed to me like there was an opportunity for me to come home and contribute. Did you talk to your dad about it at all? Yeah, I did. I talked with my dad. I talked with my brother. uh, talked with a lot of folks. And I knew that I was going to come back at some point. I loved San Francisco. It was a great three years. um, But it never felt like home to me. And this is home, and this mm-hmm. is the place that I care about the most. I, I cared about San Francisco as a employee of the city, but I didn't care in my, my soul about it the way I do about Minnesota and about the Twin Cities. And so for me, it was um, it was sort of the confluence of lots of different interests, interests in terms of bringing some of these these policy learnings that I had I had gained by working in San Francisco and tapping into some of the creativity that comes comes with what I'm trying to create here with the Constellation Fund. To me, it was a perfect opportunity to come home and contribute something um, and to give back to a, a community that I really care about. So where do you begin? You yeah. have this idea. Yeah. You, you've got this kernel of an idea. You move back to Minnesota. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah, so I started knocking on doors. Um, it was just me working out at coffee shops for a while and was just having conversations with people like me um, who had been involved in philanthropy in some capacity for a long time and had had felt frustrated by the process and frustrated by the the outcomes, or in our case, the lack of outcomes in many cases. And when you say involved in philanthropy, I mean... Were you constantly getting hit up yeah. for donations, yeah, I mean, or were you? I mean, you were on boards, right, and you had right. been in a more formalized way. Right. But yeah, for, for reasons that I can't take credit for, I've been as approached as a donor for as long as I can remember. Like, like even in, as a teenager, and co- when does when does it begin? I think yeah, I'd say I'd say in college okay. is when I I really started. Um, hearing, getting requests yeah. for political contributions, for nonprofit contributions. And yeah. had your family sort of coached you on like, okay, this is going to happen. You got to figure out what your causes are or what you believe totally. in. Yeah. I mean, going back to my early childhood, my mom had given us two two allowances. She gave us an allowance for spending and allowance for giving. And that was something her father had done for her. And it was always a, an expectation. Again, incredibly fortunate for, for reasons mm-hmm. that I can't take any credit for. Um, so it always felt an obligation and an expectation to give back. But it wasn't, you know, here's what you have to give to. And for me, I, I had been naturally drawn to the arts originally because, as you pointed out earlier, that that's part of my family's DNA. My grandfather served on the board of, uh, of Mia from... I think the age of 26 to the age he died at 97, the Hmm. longest serving arts patron in America from what I understand. Um, And so that was, I think, naturally where I was drawn because I had grown up with him going to museums and and it just felt like the natural place for someone like me to land. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it didn't necessarily match my passions, my my interests. It just felt like what I was supposed to do to get involved with the arts in some capacity. And the arts are are celebrated here, something that I celebrate. We've got incredible institutions, but we also have some some really, really tragic inequities that 
haven't, at least from my perspective, received the same level of attention philanthropically as some of these other institutions have. Why is that, do you think? I I would say a couple reasons. One, I think it is easier to be a good arts donor, for example. Again, I'm not here to pick on the arts, but Mm -hmm. it's easier to be a good arts donor than it is to be a good poverty donor, right? You decide if you're a Walker person or you're a Mia person, and then you go and and you can give at a high level and you can see the results of that given. You see your sculpture in the gallery. You see your name on on the wing. Mm -hmm. Um, You go to the parties and they're fun and you see your friends and your peers are on the boards. And in, in poverty alleviation, for example, it's a really disparate experience, right? I'm, again, I've been on the other side of the table where you sit down with an executive director. There's you know, thousands of different organizations, each of whom can present a really compelling story and point to, point to outcomes that they're proud of. And, and I believe they're all well-intentioned, and a lot of them are doing really great work. But I never felt, as a donor, like I had the ability to make a thoughtful decision about how to allocate resources, right? I I read the Wall Street Journal, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to open an E-Trade account and invest all my resources in the stock market, yet I'm expected to make really thoughtful decisions about how to allocate really important dollars towards poverty alleviation in a sophisticated way. and Just because you have money, basically. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. And, and so I'm in a position of power because, yeah. because I have resources to give, yet I don't believe that I have the tools that I need to make really thoughtful decisions about which are the organizations that are most impactful, right? Because if I give an, a dollar to this organization, I'm necessarily making a value statement about every other organization that I might have funded with that dollar. And donors, I think, make those decisions without the best tools available because because it's not what they have, right? So they they use, and again, I'll speak for myself here, rely on relationships, uh, folks who invite me to come to some event, um, look at overhead as a, you know, a proxy for impact, but anyone who's run a business knows that's often the wrong proxy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just an, an inefficient system for identifying the organizations that are having the biggest demonstrable impact and then allocating resources based on those outcomes, not based on other factors like who can do the best job of drawing you in. Right. And if if you were going to invest in a business, you would do all of that due diligence. You would figure it out. And so you wanted to apply that same kind of data-driven lens to philanthropy. That's right. And so there's in the business world, there's a marketplace, right? And and the good ideas are naturally ranked and sorted with factors like supply and demand and profits and losses, right? But in philanthropy, there is no natural marketplace. Um, there's no there's no currently uh, corollary for a, a profits metric, right? Because a lot of these impacts are happening 30 years down the road if you're looking right. at a, an early childhood education program. And so without that information, you can't really reliably compare two different early childhood education programs, let alone a housing program and an early childhood education program that have no natural point of comparison. And so, again, without that natural marketplace, it's almost impossible to make informed decisions with thousands of different opportunities. And to me, this is one of the reasons why we have thousands of nonprofits most of which you know, are in the $1 to $2 million range in terms of their size, none of which have the scale to have a transformative impact, and, and no one's really any the wiser as to which are the ones actually moving the needle. And this, and this isn't the nonprofit's fault because 
they, they aren't usually in a position to do this type of analysis to be able to show their long-term work. They're busy doing the actual work, right? And so, so donors in many cases, I, I think, haven't asked the right questions or used the right tools to get to the information that that we need to make really important decisions about pressing problems. I mean, we were named last year, Minnesota was named the most generous state in the country based on dollars given and hours volunteered. Um, yet we are dead last when it comes to a ton of metrics around poverty. We've, the, the percentage of people living in poverty has risen by roughly 60% in the last 20 years despite all this generosity. You're 5.7 times more likely to be poor in the Twin Cities if you're black than if you're white, which mm. is the largest such disparity of any major metropolitan, uh, metropolitan area in the country. And so to me, there's a disconnect there, right? How can we be so generous and not be seeing the results that we want? And I think part of it is because we're not using the tools that are out there to to identify the organizations, the interventions that are are doing the best work. So enter Constellation Yeah, enter Constellation, right. And this isn't my idea. You know, this is something that was started 30 years ago in New York with the Robin Hood Foundation, founded by a couple of folks in the finance community who had been using data, research, predictive analytics in their day jobs to make these really thoughtful investments for clients in the for-profit sector yet saw too much of, of uh, relationships and historical giving patterns and even intuition driving donors' decisions and saw it as a, an inefficient system. And so started Robinhood around this idea of how do you use the best available information to make the best possible investments in poverty alleviation. Simple idea, complicated execution. Mm-hmm. Um, and really what it is is just that. How do we use the best information? So ideally, again, that's 30-year longitudinal data from nonprofits on their outcomes almost never exists for privacy costs, logistical reasons. But there's this huge body of evidence out there, all this research, people who have been dedicating their lives to studying all these different types of interventions. And we can use that as a proxy to say, okay, well, this type of intervention, chances are it's been studied somewhere. We can use that research as a as a proxy to say these are the likely long-term poverty-fighting impacts that we can see from this type of intervention. Then you take the local demographic information, right? So to understand who the people who are being served are and what likely would have happened but for this intervention, which you could call counterfactual, something that's almost always missing in philanthropy, you know, a school that's graduating 95% of its kids, that that sounds great, but if 90% of them are high performers anyway, then the benefits mm. might not be quite quite as big as you might see, uh, mm-hmm. think. And then using data that nonprofits generally do have, which is output, right? How many people are they serving? What are the demographics? And cost, how much does it cost? And with that, with that you can model out a benefit-cost analysis that says, okay, if we give this organization $100,000, here are the long-term poverty-fighting benefits that we can expect based on evidence. And it gives you a chance to understand, you know, it gives you a chance to compare two things. One is how do you compare two similarly situated education programs, again, to that example. But again, how can you compare the, the poverty-fighting benefits that come from a housing program and an education program? Well, there's no na- natural common denominator, but if you can value the benefits that each are creating, you can start to compare apples to oranges by using evidence. Hmm. Some of it ends up being subjective, doesn't it, though? Totally. I mean, you've got to kind of pick what results you're looking for. 
Yeah, so the, 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 the main two measurables running through all this, right, is uh, long-term lifetime improvements to health and long-term lifetime improvements to income. Um, so that's the common common thread between all the different measurements that we're conducting. And again, this is something that Robinhood has developed over the course of 30 years. They've got this economic framework that lays out 175 different metrics, each one valuing the benefits that come out of a different type of poverty intervention. So from housing to jobs to education to health. Um, and these are built in sophisticated ways by really smart people, economists, uh, community leaders. And so when I moved home, one of the first things I did was take Robin Hood's work, which they have generously shared uh, with us. They've been supportive of what we're doing. So have the folks in San Francisco at Tipping Point and brought together a team of the state's leading economists. So folks from the Wilder Foundation, from Carlson, from Humphrey, from the Federal Reserve Bank in, the, in Minneapolis, and essentially gone through Robin Hood's metrics and localized them with the best local information. So uh, all the data that we have available on on the problems that we're facing in the Twin Cities, uh, all the demographic information, built that into to the framework. And then also used the updated research from this community. A lot of great research stems from this community. We've got some of the best research institutions in the country. And so you can localize a lot of that as well to, to make sure that the, the metrics we're using are built to the realities of the poverty landscape here. Mm-hmm. And then to your point, they have to be applied really thoughtfully, right? Because numbers can be massaged to, to mean a lot of things. Look at that 95% number for a school, right? That mm-hmm. might not be what you think. So um, we've got an economist on staff who had been doing this type of work at the Wilder Foundation and being paid. Uh, Wilder is a great organization, um, but in many cases, their work is out of reach for nonprofits, right? It's, it's expensive to do this type of work. And so the goal here is to bring that out into the community as part of our grant-making process so nonprofits have access to the outcome information that they need. So how exactly does this work? Do the nonprofits come to you? Do you go, do you pick the ones you want to analyze? How does the process work? So right now, um, we, we've been inviting a small pool to participate. We're in our pilot phase right now. Um, we're almost done. We actually have a a board meeting tomorrow to, to go through our, our pilot. Um, and to, to look at the evaluations that we've conducted. But the goal is to open this up to applications. So nonprofits who are working in the area of poverty alleviation can apply to get a grant from the Constellation Fund. And then as part of our grant-making process, we'll conduct these evaluations, which then will be theirs to keep as a free asset, which would have cost them tens mm-hmm. of thousands of dollars on the open market. The upside sounds really great. There's also sounds like there could be a lot of risk for them. It could be a little intimidating to put themselves through this rigor. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's right. And it was one of the concerns I had when I moved home to do this. Um but I think two things that mitigate against that. One is we won't release our full rankings, right? So if an organization doesn't score well in our evaluation, uh, they'll receive that information, which they can use internally to, to perhaps improve the way they're, they're applying their programs. Um, but we won't make that public. Now, who we give grants to will obviously be indicative of who we think is doing the best work. So there's upside for organizations to participate. And then if they're provided with a grant, that if you look at the folks in New York at Robinhood, they've been doing this for 30 years. But 
you know, those organizations put Robin Hood's grant on their the front page of their website, like mm-hmm. a lead platinum sure. stamp of approval, which allows other funders to see, hey, this has been vetted by Robin Hood. They know they're doing their homework. Um, but the downside is is limited for organizations because we're not we're not releasing those rankings. But I I've also just seen now going through this pilot that organizations want this information. I mean that people want to be having an impact. They're not in this for the money. Um, they're in it because they want to have an impact and they want to be able to articulate that impact to their donors. They want to get better and they don't yet have the tools, the resources to do this type of work. And they know it's out there. It's being done for other nonprofits. And so while there is, you know, it's a arguably vulnerable position to say, hey, we're going to come in and lift up the hood and uh, tell you what we think your impact is. I think the upside is is much bigger than the downside. For so the the actual grants yeah. when, when you get to that part, yeah. um, where's the money coming from? Is it all you? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I, you know I, I have made a, a personal investment of a million dollars to kick this this project off um, because I think it's needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we will be looking, and we're starting this now to raise outside resources. But one of the cool things about what we're doing and this is based on these models on either coast, um, is we are covering all of our overhead. So our board, we've got a board now of eight members, and our board is paying for all of our work, and we'll be doing that in perpetuity. So every donor, every dollar that we get from the outside community, every penny goes straight through into the organizations that we've been able to show based on evidence are doing really impactful work. Um, and so, so could the public donate? Yep. Yep. We're a 501c3. Um, and so whether it's $1 or a million dollars, every penny is put into a grant making pool and then allocated based strictly on outcomes, right? And I've talked a lot about the, the metrics already, but to your point, there are sort of softer sides of the evaluation process. If you think of it like a you know, we're at St. Thomas now. Think of it like an admissions office. You've mm-hmm. got the SAT score, which you need to compare thousands of different types of opportunities, right? It's, a, it's the common denominator that allows you to compare different types of students with different types of backgrounds. But you also need the softer side of the applications, the letter of rec- letters of recommendation, the grades. And, and so that's part of our evaluation, too, a more traditional qualitative analysis, which includes quality of the leadership, the fiscal health of the organization, um, the community needs. So listening to the, to the needs of folks who are actually living these experiences in poverty to make sure that this type of intervention is, is meeting their needs. Um, so we're not blindly following the metrics here. But again, without without that analysis, we're, we're leaving so much information on the table. I'll give you an example out of the folks in New York, right? They, they were evaluating an after-school program, um, and the grades were flat. So the kids who were, were in the program weren't seeing improved grades. And so their grades were flat, and the program was losing funding. Um, but Robin Hood came in and did an evaluation and showed that the kids who were being served in this case were third-grade African-American boys for the most part. And research shows that it's around third-grade when African-American boys start being seen as young men and teachers start feeling threatened by them. Hmm. And so their grades drop. And so actually, by keeping those grades flat, there was real impact happening there. But but that would have been missed had that analysis not been conducted, right? And and there's so much of this research out there, right? I mean, we've got a binder full of this of this work that's been built into this framework. And what it forces you to do is build into the grant-making process 
all the best available information, all those types of insights that no program officer or no certainly independent donor like me would be in a position to synthesize in a really thoughtful way to make sure that we're using all that we know to make the best possible decisions. And and so this is a way, again, to take take my intuition as a donor out of the decision in a way and then turn it over to evidence. And that's not to say that we're trying to take people out of philanthropy. I mean, we want folks to get involved with the organizations that, that we fund. If they want to fund those organizations directly, I, I can live with that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is about, in my opinion, changing the narrative about what smart philanthropy looks like in the Twin Cities because I think we can do it even better. So what will you consider a success mm-hmm. for you and for the Constellation Fund? And, and, and how yeah. long do you think it's going to take to, yeah. to make an impact? Well, the goal is to make the problem smaller, not Constellation bigger, right? And mm-hmm. so um, I do think that to be successful, we need to raise resources. And so we're, we're, actively, we're actively doing that and are seeing a lot of interest from folks who, again, I think are frustrated by the process or overwhelmed. How do you get your arms around this problem? It's, it's just, it's so complex. Uh, it's so intersectional. And, and just sort of giving ad hoc doesn't, doesn't feel like a, a thoughtful way. And I, I see this from folks of a younger generation. I mean, we see this in, in Ascove, right? Folks just don't just want to know if the pants fit. They want to know, is the cotton ethically grown? And, you know, I mean, younger people are asking a lot of questions because they're using these types of sophisticated tools in their day jobs to make really thoughtful decisions. So I think that this is where philanthropy is naturally going. I want to be part of bringing that to the Twin Cities in a really thoughtful way um, to make sure that this this methodology is being applied, not not just, again, over-reliant on metrics, but making sure that there's a balance of the, the, the metrics and and the, the more subjective sides of philanthropy. I mean, that was in many ways the, the inspiration for the name Constellation. There's two sides to the stars, right? There's a astronomy and astrology. There's the, the science and the stories. And you need both to really understand the meaning of the stars. And I think the same is true of philanthropy. You've got You've got the quantitative analysis, all this data research that's out there, and you've got the more qualitative. And I think we've been overweighted in the qualitative. And so to get to your question, I see success as elevating the bar in this town for what smart philanthropy looks like. Because it's easy to say you're data-driven, right? Everyone's data-driven. But often the data that we're using is just output. It's how many, how many jobs did we create? How many mouths did we feed? How many beds did we fill? Well, that's important, but it's a, a half step to the outcome information we want, right? If you're going to get surgery at Mayo, you don't just want to know how many surgeries your surgeons mm-hmm. performed. You want to know how they go. Right. Um, and so that's where I think we need to get as a philanthropic community. And if this was a for-profit venture, you'd have to come to me for this. But I want to share this work. We're going to post our metrics online. I sit on the Minneapolis Foundation board, for example, and have been talking with RT about about how to build these types of tools into their grant making. Same goes at the United Way and the St. Paul Foundation. I've seen real excitement about these types of tools. Um, so for, for me, success means 
bringing this type of thinking to philanthropy and building it into the way that we think about giving. And if that means that Constellation doesn't need to exist in 10 years because it's, it's been institutionalized into some of the, uh, these other bigger funders, I think that's fine. Um, success to me is, is tackling this problem as smart as we can. Right. What do you think your grandfather would say about the work you're doing? You know, he had another quote that I heard often, which is, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. And that was his business motto, right? He was someone who really dug into the details. And he brought that same enthusiasm and focus to his work at Mia and his work at Target and Dayton Hudson. And to me, what Eric and I have done at, at the Bassett Farmer and Ascove and Marvel and what I'm now trying to do at Constellation, and, and Eric's been a part of that too, he's a member of our board, um, is about diving into those details. Because I think it's true. You get what you inspect, not what you expect. And we're doing as much as we possibly can to inspect this problem with all the tools and all the sophistication that, that's available to, to get and expect better results. Um, and I think he'd be proud of that. Yeah, I think so too. Great work. Thanks for sharing what you're doing today. Uh, it will be really interesting to see what, what results you get, and it'll be uh, exciting and inspirational to follow along. Stick around. Next, we're going back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas. Thanks for being here, Andrew. Thanks, Ellie. Now, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. So how should corporations think about giving? Well, let's ask Professor Katerina Pettit. She's the department chair of the Ethics and Business Law Department here at St. Thomas. Professor, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. So you had a chance to listen to mm -hmm. Andrew talking, and I think a lot of businesses today are grappling with the fact that more employees want to be working for a mission-driven company. Um, companies want to be doing more good in the world. How do you work that in to a for-profit business? Well, and in the past, you know, we, when we look at the contrast of what people used to do, because there was always an expectation that a business is going to give back to the community, is going to be a member of the community. So people would just donate money to a random assortment of organizations, but it was often not very coordinated or even aligned with what the business was doing. And these days, entrepreneurs uh, and businesses are increasingly thinking about, well, what is it that we're doing as a business and how can we make sure that all the other activities we do line up with that and make sense? And then we can also leverage our skills. So you heard that really from the interview with um, Andrew Dayton, that he was thinking about, well, how do I use the skills that I have in the best way possible? Because often you go and uh, you just engage in some activities, but you're not very good at it. And mm -hmm. so um, employees want to use the skills that they have in the workplace and apply them in various uh, nonprofit organizations or other charitable efforts. And so there's a desire to be consistent in everything that you do and not have this divided life. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you give to, it's probably easier if you're a new company just Definitely. starting out today yes. to think <laughs> about it. I think the real challenge is for existing companies, maybe that have been in business for generations that used to just write a check or take a portion out of paychecks, and that's not the way people right. want to give anymore. How do you really shift your practices? Well, one way is certainly to ask the employees, because they often know very intimately 
exactly how the product that they have or the service connects with what the community needs. And they often are active in the community personally, so they would know what the connections are. And it sometimes helps also to look back at, at what vision the founders had of what the company is supposed to do, what its purpose and its mission is. And if you combine those two things almost sort of from a top down and a bottom up, you can think of ways where these efforts make more sense. And in that sense, they then more they're more authentic. Uh, it really is much more efficient um, and it will work better. So work with the employees and just ask them what is it that they see as being the best use of their talents and skills. And I like the idea of applying the same thinking you would about making an investment to the, right. the way you give. Right. And so so this is a little bit of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, we like this idea of getting a return for your investment. And so that is obviously what guides investment decisions. But sometimes you... I mean, this is what, what Andrew was talking about when he said, well, you make a value statement when you pick a, you know, an organization to give to. And sometimes efficiency is kind of at odds with that, because if you make a value statement, sometimes there are things worth giving to that are maybe not the most efficient. And you could get more, quote unquote, bang for your buck if you gave to something else. But it's still something that's important to you and your vision of what you do in the community. So as much as I like that thinking, and it certainly helps things run smoother, uh, companies should really keep that in mind, that there's always those two things, you know, the, the values that you represent with what you do and the efficiency of running a business. Right. Great advice. Thank you so much, Professor Pat. I appreciate you being here today. Thanks to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, tell a friend too. Next week, we talk to Liz Georgie, the founder and CEO of Mightier, about how social media can help your business. I'm Allison Kaplan, and on behalf of Twin Cities Business, thanks for listening to By All Means. Thanks to Brad Jacobson, John Sullivan, and Tom Forlitti from St. Thomas, as well as Sam Schaust and Ricky Hannigan from Twin Cities Business for helping to produce and engineer our show. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thanks also to Senior Media Relations Manager Vanita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship Laura Dunham for helping us to make this happen. Hope you enjoyed. By all means. Mm-hmm.